Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Henry. Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you. Uh, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I know we're a few weeks uh, from Christmas, but I wanted to share this um, short little comic strip. It reminds us of how easily we adopt uh, kind of have misconceptions of Santa Claus. Uh, if you see on this slide, there's two children there. They're, they're peeking around the corner into the living room, and there's Santa Claus with a scowl on his face, brandishing a whip coming their way, and the little boy whispers to his sister, oh crap, it's Old Testament Santa. <laughs> okay, so uh, that, that's sometimes how we view God. Right? I mean, sometimes we have this view of God that he's angry and he's ready to deal out punishment. Um, and I want to invite you into this passage that gives us, I think, a more attractive, winsome view of God that the God we worship is, is, is a God in the transformation business. Uh, he's about transforming us. He's about pursuing lost people and bringing them home. Uh, some of you have entered into this new year and you're desperate for change. You're desperate for something to change in your life. You're stressed, you're anxious, you're simply worn out, you're fearful. And Paul is showing us God's not content with us living those kinds of lives. He's not content with us living defeated lives. He's in the transformation business. Now the question is how? How are we transformed as Christians? How do we grow? How do we become the people God has, has called us to be, wants us to be, invites us to be? I uh, read at the end of the year last year in 2018 an article in The Guardian by a, a young woman named Juliana Piscortz. It was titled, Me in My Quarter-Life Crisis. A Millennial Asks, What Went Wrong? <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about a 25-year-old, 26-year-old having this quarter-life crisis for those of us who are at their midlife crisis, like myself. But uh, 
She uh, talks about how she's 25, she's unable to pay rent, the closest thing to a car she owns is a broken skateboard, um, she has tightness in her chest, her sweat glands in her palms are in overdrive, um, panic attacks are a part of her regular routine, and all of this manifests itself in her wanting to run away from her life, to start again, to bury herself in anything that would distract her from her reality. She puts it this way, I appear to have it all. I'm healthy with a good job, close friends, a loving if dysfunctional family, and yet I feel lost, as do the people around me. And she describes a conversation she had with a London psychiatrist who uh, suggests that we in society today have really lost something uh, by turning our backs on religion uh, for it not to play a big part in our lives. Uh, he, he told her this, that one of the features of, of religious belief is that your value is intrinsic rather than based upon performance or image. And hopefully that's something you've heard here when we preach the gospel He says, as we moved away from religious-based society, religion-based society, young people are looking towards their careers to validate their sense of self. And Juliana talks in this article about how, uh, what a contrast she noticed in her grandmother, who she spent going, you know, her inner youth going to church. Uh, Her grandmother, who through the Second World War was in a labor camp in Siberia and spent her life um, with a deep strong relationship with God. And when her grandmother died, she said in in 2012 that she had an unwavering confidence that God was going to get, that God had given her lifelong purpose. And this, this young 25 year old is contrasting that with her experience. And she says this, she says, for my generation work, not prayer has become the personal project. The struggle for meaningful employment is something I, I read about time and time again in my Instagram inbox. For the first time ever, the pressure to find a career that could define you for the next 50 years feels as important as finding a life partner. So when you have neither, it's easy to feel as if you failed. So whether you're a millennial or a boomer or a Gen Xer, Uh, We are all looking for purpose. We're all looking for meaning. And you have a choice. And I think Paul is setting up this dynamic and this contrast and this decision that all of us have to make. We either are going to try to find that purpose and meaning in things in this world, in this life, or we can find it in God. And, and what Paul's showing us here, he's saying if when you find it in God, God comes and transforms you and changes you from the inside out. We're not talking about this outward just behavioral transformation where you just become a good person, you become a moral person, and you kind of, you know, will yourself to be a better person. He says, no, there's something transformative and life-giving when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and Paul here in, a, in the passage shows us that he, he is talking to who he deems, he calls them Gentiles, which basically Paul's talking to these Christians in Ephesus who were not Jews. So all of these, quote, pagan uh, Greeks and Romans who have come to faith in Jesus, he says, uh, and and we have to admit, kind of in an offensive, offensive way, he describes these 
the Gentile way of life, notice all the language that he uses here to describe it, but I'll summarize it this way. He effectively says these Gentiles, uh, in the futility of their minds, in the hardness of their heart. So I just want to summarize the way Paul's talking about these Gentiles is that their minds, they, they have futile thoughts and calloused, hardened hearts. Now, what does he mean by the futility Futility of their minds, where this word futility in the Greek, it, it speaks of meaninglessness, uselessness, worthlessness, emptiness. And the, the majority of the occurrences of this word in the Old Testament, in the, what's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, it's, uh, we see it often in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've ever read that book, you know it's a lot about the meaninglessness of life without God. And, it, and uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when it, we, we see this word, it's linked to the worship of false idols. In the Old Testament, we see that time and time again. God's people turn towards false idols. They turn towards statues, gold statues, um, I, idols of all sorts of, uh, of kinds of makings that, that people would turn to. And in Jeremiah chapter 2... God says this to his people. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? There God is talking about their worship of these false idols. A golden calf or or some other thing we might think of. Here's this word futility again. And what God is saying is that those people who worship those false idols are themselves becoming what they worship, and that's worthless. They're beginning to resemble the worthlessness of the thing that they're worshiping. And you know, that's true of us today. I mean, we don't worship false idols like they did in the Old Testament, but what other things do we worship? And I think Juliana, this young woman who's in this quarter-life crisis, she's, I think she's tapping into seeing that one path she's been offered as a millennial is to worship career. And she's realized, I don't have a career. What am I to do? She's seen the emptiness of that pursuit, especially since she doesn't have that career that she finds satisfying and life-giving. Now, it's not just career. The New York Times had an article called The Relentlessness of Modern Parenting. Now, as a parent myself, I found this to be so relevant in my own life. The article goes on to talk about how the time that parents spend in the presence of their children has not changed over the last few decades. But parents today spend more of that time doing hands-on child care, okay? So what, what the article is saying is we spend as much time in the presence of our kids, but parents today feel the pressure that they have to be engaged with their children. Uh, The time spent in activities like reading to children, doing crafts, taking them to lessons, attending recitals and games, helping with homework, all of that has increased for parents of of children today. Today, mothers spend nearly five hours a week 
on that compared to an hour and 45 minutes a week back in 1975. That's when I was, you know, two years old. So my mom spent, you know, three and a half hours less time with me. So that, there's some therapy I could do, I'm sure, for that. But the point in the article is it's not necessarily better today. Uh, Parents' leisure time, like exercising or socializing, is much more likely to be spent with their children. And, And we're caught up in this, what it describes as this intensive parenting trap that's common among middle to upper class Americans. Uh, The way that it describes it, it says it starts in utero when mothers are told to avoid cold cuts and coffee, lest they harm the baby, then video baby monitors, then homemade baby food, then sugar-free birthday cakes, then toddler music classes, then breastfeeding exclusively, then spraying children's hands with sanitizer, covering them with natural sunscreen, throwing pin-interest perfect birthday parties, eating lunch in their school cafeteria, And eventually, we'll be calling the employers uh, of our adult children who have interviewed for jobs. (laughs) Helicopter parenting. But this is what we're left with. We're anxious about our kids, aren't we, as parents? Uh, One mother in that article puts it this way. There's a sense something's wrong with you if you aren't with your child every second when when you're not at work. And what is that? That I think it's pointing to this emptiness within us, this fear within us that we're missing out on something. And, and again, I think that can be an idol. That can be us worshiping our kids. And so uh, when Paul talks about the futility of, of life without God... I think we have to ask this question and say, you know, if you have a a view of reality where God is not in the picture, ultimately everything that you love right now will be taken away from you. Think about it. If you have a story of reality where God is not in the picture, what is the ultimate end of all things? Well, it's all going to burn up in the end. You're going to die, and that's going to be the end. Everybody you love gone. Everything you've worked towards, gone. Everything you've invested yourself in, what is, it, it, it comes to nothing. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about how if Jesus Christ did, was not raised from the dead, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It sounds like a pretty good motto, if there is no God. What's the point other than to indulge, indulge our desires today? Paul says, do not be deceived, though. Wake up from your drunken stupor. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying these Gentiles who view life without God, it's futile. It leads to emptiness. It burns up in the end. Now, many Stoics in Paul's day would have believed they had a coherent way of viewing the world, that they were very moral people. And and again, let me affirm, I have friends who don't believe in God, and they are more moral than I am. Let me tell you, they are better people. They're giving, and they're loving, 
And they do wonderful things. So this is not an issue about whether you're a good person or a bad person. What Paul is saying is it's whether you have a view that there's a life after this life or whether this is all there is. And Paul would argue that if this is all there is, then everything you've you've invested yourself in is, is meaningless. That's what Paul's trying to say. But it's not only your mind. He's not only talking about the mind here. He's also talking about the heart. He talks about the hardness of the heart. He describes their hearts as callous. Now, if you think about a musician, you know, Mark and the band and others who play guitar, if you were to feel Mark's hands, I'm sure his fingers would be very calloused for hours, from hours of, of holding those strings down. And that protects his fingers from the hurt and pain that comes from playing an instrument over and over and over again. And what Paul is saying, he's describing these these Gentiles as if their hearts are calloused. Their hearts don't feel. Their hearts aren't sensitive. Now, does that mean someone who doesn't believe in God is a calloused, unfeeling person? No, Paul is saying their hearts are calloused towards God. They can be very loving, again, very feeling people, but Paul's talking about their their sensitivity and understanding of who God is and their relationship with him. And so this loss of relationship with God, Paul says, leads people to uncontrolled, outrageous, sinful behavior. Now, I think Paul's talking about a particular type of person here, um, and I think if you've ever struggled with an addiction, you can identify with Paul and what he's saying here. Um, it kind of brings to mind the old potato chip ad. Bet you can't have just one. I think I have a, a slide here. Um, you know, that idea, you know, if you have one, it, something clicks and you can't just have one. And that's what Paul seems to be talking about here in the desires of the heart. He says, without God in your life, very often what what can happen is it just becomes about fulfilling the desires, your every desire. And when you let yourself go down that path, you realize that your heart is this empty well, bottomless well that can never be fulfilled. And you will just go back and go back and go back. And you'll find after a while you're never able to satisfy those deep desires that you have. And it becomes uncontrollable. And again, if you've struggled with an addiction, you know what I'm talking about. You know what that feels like. You can't control yourself. Now, the ancient Greeks, and some of the people here Paul would be addressing, like the Cynics and the Stoics, they were big into controlling and suppressing and squashing your desires. They believed that the desires, they called it the disease of the mind, that your passions were the enemy. And that that wisdom, a mark of wisdom and maturity would be to Become a person who squashed any sort of desire. And sometimes, unfortunately, Christians can fall into that trap. And think what Paul's telling us is that we're supposed to suppress our desires and become people who are more like robots than human beings. 
But no one can live a desire-free life, and that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that your passions are the enemy and that it's your passions that are wrong. Desire's not the problem. Now, I shared a few... uh, a while ago, how we got a new dog. His name's Boomer. He's a cockapoo. He's about six months old now, and we've been taking him to obedience training. And uh, just yesterday, we uh, are learning how to take Boomer on a walk because he's about 35 pounds, and he is rambunctious and energetic. And when you take him on a walk, sometimes you, it's hard to, ho- to hold him and restrain him. I mean, because he wants to go. He really wants to go. And... Um, one of the things that the, uh, the lady leading the obedience uh, class gave us was called a gentle leader. And I think I have a slide here. Uh, it goes on the dog's nose, and, and you don't have to tug or pull or anything. The way this thing works, it doesn't hurt them, it doesn't choke them, it doesn't do any of these things. But the way that it works is it helps Boomer learn how to control that impulse to, to pull and to, he, he learns to walk right next to us. And Paul in this passage, what he's, he's trying to get us to see here is that your heart can become so calloused and so hardened to God. It can be like Boomer who just wants to go, run, run from Christ, just fulfill your every desire to live on your own, to live for yourself, and just to take off. And what Paul's trying to get us to see is that, no, we are to stick right next to Christ. It's not about suppressing and killing your passion. It's about passion directed to Jesus. It's about passion directed in the, in the right way, in a controlled way, pointed and focused on Jesus. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote a short story called The Oracle of the Dog, and the hero in the short story is this detective priest called Father Brown. And he says this, that the first effects of not believing in God is that you lose your common sense and can't see things as they are. Now, again, I know that's an offensive statement to someone who doesn't believe in God. But I think that's what Paul's saying here. And, and I want to ask you, is that true of you? Are you in that place today where your mind has become darkened? That you've given yourself to some futile pursuits that you think are going to fulfill you, but in the end ultimately will not? And is your heart hardened towards Christ? Have you become calloused towards Him? And have you let your passions and desires take you down certain roads that you know are not good for you, and you sense that you're out of control. Well, I want you to see, we're going we're gonna to spend more time talking about this next part uh, next week, but I just want to bring your attention <coughs> briefly to, to verses 20 to 24, because this is the second half of Paul's point here. He's talking about the ways, if you're a Christian, the ways you used to believe and used to think, and he, he invites us into a new way of living here in verses 20 and following. And he starts off by saying, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Now, this is a fascinating thing for Paul to say. 
the way that he puts it, this is not the way you learned Christ. He's not saying the way you learned the teachings of Christ, like you would learn from reading a book. And he's not saying the way you learned by following Christ's example. When Paul, in a unique way, says the way that you learned Christ, Paul is talking about a relational a relational learning, the way that you've come into a relationship with Christ and that relationship has been transformative for you and changed you. And it changes everything. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that's what Paul's talking about. Once you've come to faith in Christ, it's like you've put new glasses on and you see everything clearly. You see everything in a way you never saw before. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Paul says, he, he goes on to tell us, he talks about this idea of putting off the old self. He says, put off the old self. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. Again, next week we're going to talk about more about that dynamic of putting off and putting on. But here, I just want you to, to notice there's a decision that's involved here. What Paul's talking about a decision was when someone comes to faith in Jesus, they're making a decision to identify themselves with Christ. They are in turning their backs on their old life and adopting a new life. And that's something that takes place internally. It's a spiritual reality, but it's also something that happens in the decisions that you make daily. And the way Paul uses this language of putting off and putting on, it's the way somebody in, in his day and age would have talked about putting clothes on. You know, we think about Mr. Rogers every time he would start his show. What would he do? He'd come in and take his shoes off, put new shoes on, put the sweater on. That's the image Paul is, has here of this putting on. And, and he's, he's speaking of it in terms of this one-time event. Kind of like all, if you have a testimony story of coming to faith, like you can think back this point in time when you decided to follow Christ. And, and the imagery that I think of this time of year is uh, college football recruits. If you've seen uh, the circus that is um, recruiting day when they, when they sign players, they, uh, these players will line up hats on a table. Kind of like these hats, you know, the player, the player will have a hat that they want to pick from. And I want you to imagine the imagery Paul's talking about here. It's, it, imagine this high school football player has their high school hat on. And then the next picture, uh, you have a player putting on the school of choice. And, and that hat represents a new identity for them. They're now identified with this new program whatever the school is that they've chosen. And that is a one-time event. It happens at one point in time when that player moves from high school, chooses their school, and goes off and plays for their new school. And that's kind of the imagery Paul's talking about here. When you come to faith in Christ, 
you are taking off the old, putting on the new, and it's this one-time act. But, but, Paul goes on to talking about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, yes, it's a one-time act of putting, taking off and putting on, but you have to continue daily doing that. In other words, daily identifying with Christ, daily reminding yourself to take off the old, put on the new. Not that you're continually having to earn your salvation, but it's a reality, a choice that you have to make in your mind and in your heart that I'm going to ground, stay rooted in Christ and be grounded in him, that he is my hope, he is my identity, and God renews us through that daily process. Now, I'll end with this story of sharing in my own life of how this is playing itself out. And hopefully this, this will help you and you can identify it. The best, the, where I've seen this in my life today is in my relationship with Olivia and in my marriage. And I've shared with you that we've been um, in counseling and, and working on some things. And, and the way that I've seen what Paul's talking about in my own life is in how I relate with Olivia when she comes to me with something that I've done to maybe uh, invalidate her or, or hurt her. At the beginning of our journey together in therapy, this is how the dynamic would play out. She would come to me with something that I've done, and I would listen. You know what I would do? Internally, I would think to myself, man, why does she, why does she have to be so critical? Why does she have to get on me all the time? Why does she have to, uh, why is this such a big deal? See why we needed therapy? <laughs> uh, but that was my initial starting point. The problem was her. The problem was her. That was in my mind. That's how I viewed my wife. It was also in my heart. I was very callous towards her and unfeeling. And the journey of working with a therapist has, this is how it's pro progressed, is as we've talked with the therapist and as I've heard the therapist say to me things like, Jason, she's right. <laughs> Jason, you need to see, and he fills in the blank. And over the weeks and months of that process, what I began to see was that when Olivia would come to me with something, I would, in my mind, stop myself and go, now, wait a minute. My initial response is to judge my wife, but I need to see that I have done something here. You see, my mind is beginning to be changed in how I view, enlightened, no longer as it darkened, in my pride, in my unwillingness and ignorance to see what my wife is telling me, I've, begin to, I've begun to see this change where I view my wife differently and then by default view myself differently and say, wait a minute, I've done something here that I probably need to see and I need to own and I need to ask for forgiveness for. Now, that's in my mind and that's, that's some progress. And I think that's what Paul's talking about, this renewal but there's the hard element because 
the way the journey has gone is I've gotten to the mind part. Okay, I need to see something. I need to see what I've done. But at the beginning, my heart was still hard. My heart was still calloused. I didn't grieve what I'd done to my wife. You see the difference? It was a mental, intellectual thing that hadn't softened my heart. And where the journey is today is now, God, I'm seeing God begin to work on my heart so that when my wife comes to me with this, it's not only a process of me going, wait a minute, I need to see what I've done. I'm also noticing how my heart is softening. The calluses are beginning to be stripped away. My heart is beginning to be softened towards her. And that is the renewal that Jesus offers us. That is the renewal he offers you. But it's a decision that you need to make to expose yourself to the work of the Spirit in your life. And I invite you into that. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So would you join me as we pray and prepare for the offering? Lord Jesus, I I thank you for this passage and this um, challenging idea of the transformation that you're offering us. And I pray that as we reflect and contemplate this, this morning and prepare our hearts for communion, that Holy Spirit, you begin to work in the room and work in our hearts and lives. Invite us into this new life that you offer, and may we embrace it wholeheartedly, Jesus, knowing that you are good and faithful and trustworthy. And we don't have to fear losing the old life because the old life offers us nothing. You, Jesus, offer us everything. And we pray for the courage to follow. In your name, amen.